I never got attention from hot guys. Even when I was at my hottest, circa seventh grade, with highlights and Steve Madden platforms, I was more of a magnet for the socially disenfranchised and Oregon Trail computer game set than for more traditional hunks. And for the most part, I was fine with that. I picked my crushes wisely. Skinny boys obsessed with Super 8 film, a cellist with buck teeth, a tiny philosopher in a sweater that may have actually been a dress. I knew I could represent something to these boys, something beautiful. Understanding, salvation, a still-growing pair of boobs strapped to a lady who didn't want to murder him for trying to touch them. I rounded the bases with boys who looked like Dobby the house elf and ceased to even consider the Abercrombie men of the world as viable options, as if I were a practical woman looking for a condominium within my price range. When a male model did, once, show interest in me freshman year of college, I approached it skeptically, like someone being offered a dubious investment opportunity. It turned out he had a girlfriend in Arizona and was desperately looking for a crash pad that wasn't his Zoolander model apartment. Ponzi scheme. But being famous confuses everything. Suddenly you're operating with a new currency, false but powerful, that relevels the playing field you've grown accustomed to living on the downward slope of. Famous women, women in general, have a far keener memory of what it was like to be just a girl in the corner. At least I did the first night I ventured out to an Emmys party. The year was 2012, and girls had been on the air for about six months. I was reveling in the attention like a kid in a Christmas pageant, but also nervous Ashton Kutcher was going to jump out from behind a white van and scream, PUNKED! Without getting too entourage on your asses, I'll just tell you that Emmy weekend is a real clusterfuck. Ever want to see the cast of Caroline in the City rubbing shoulders with the dudes from Justified? Well, the party the night before the Emmys is your chance. At the time, I happened to be watching a lot of Lifetime TV for comfort, and was particularly focused on the client list, Jennifer Love Hewitt's show about prostitution in which you hardly even saw a male nipple. Her love interest on the show, played with a compelling aggression by an actor named Colin Egglesfield, was my favorite character. So when I found myself seated near him on a large red ottoman shaped like a pair of lips at the most glamorous party of my lifetime, I lost my breath. Hi. He smiled, all tall, dark, and handsome. We talked a moment until I was certain he wasn't looking for money before he asked, Can I get you a drink? Sure, I cried. And then, the strangest and most unnecessary lie in American history left my lips. No one has ever gotten me a drink before. I was an adult. I was a professional. I was in a serious relationship, and yet in that moment, my only goal on earth was to make Colin Egglesfield feel special. More than special. Essential. I decided it was good I hadn't spent more time around chiseled men who looked like calendar models because, as it turns out, it made me totally fucking stupid. As he walked away to retrieve my whiskey ginger, a drink order summoned in a fit of desperation, I replayed the conversation in my mind, imagining his inner dialogue. Can I get you a drink? Oh, yeah, no one's ever gotten me a drink before. Of course they haven't, because you're a box troll who spent all of high school volunteering for a rabbit rescue association. Me, I've been sexually active since I was nine, mostly with hot divorcees, but I really like the indie cachet you bring to the table, and I also don't do that much charity work, so getting you a drink makes me feel and look like a really good person who volunteers with the less fortunate. I've seen your show, and I think it's very healthy for me to be associated with women whose stomachs look like Ziploc bags full of milk. It ups my cred and makes women like Olivia Munn more likely to find me deep and compelling. In fact, we should go to Coachella and share a tent, but not fuck, right? Cool. I'll be right back with your drink. I'd nailed it. 
My newfound success had made me a desirable accessory, a brand improvement tool, a way to show other boobier women your depth and sense of humor and ability to tolerate binge eaters and conversations about rape. Nailed you, Colin Egglesfield. I nailed you good. I sat scrunching my silk skirt between my sweaty hands, and Colin Egglesfield returned and handed me my beverage with a gentle smile. So, he asked, are you on a show or what do you do? Jesus, I feel weird at these things. So stressful. Turns out, I'm a fucking dick. I've had so much more than a good time. It's meant so much more to me. But I don't know if I'll ever fit inside who you want me to be. Thank you to Colin Egglesfield for playing along in this sick mind fuck. You really are a talent and I care about you. Welcome to Women of the Hour. I'm Lena Dunham, and I'm just going to keep on talking till the world ends. Today, we're going to be talking about love and sex. Let's start off today with relationship deal breakers from Heaven Nagatu and Tracy Clayton. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Heaven. Today, we're going to be talking about deal breakers. I can do that. I have some deal breakers. <laughs> You're straight. Yes. What are the things in a dude that you'd be like, nope, I'm out? Dirty fingernails are an instant turn off. Oh, man. You're not putting those things. You're so self-conscious. No. <laughs> well, I mean, You like, wouldn't date me. <laughs> I can't see your like, fingers no. <laughs> But I mean, the I'm first not, thing that I think is like, you're not putting those near me or on me or in me. Like, what if I have sensitive... they work a day of labor? Okay, well, you need to like be conscious enough to be like, oh, do my nails look like I've been like burrowing with woodland creatures all day? Oh my God. <laughs> you know, I mean, like I'm talking about like really like okay, just so... like black fingernails. People walk around like that all day on In what situation are you experiencing these people? I just like, like know these this... mole people with black <laughs> fingernails. <laughs> I mean, you know, just like people watching, you know, on a train, sitting so on like a park like, bench or something. So it's if you're watching someone on the train, you're like, oh, that person's cute. You will notice their fingernails. Yeah, just like in a general appraisal. I'm not like, ooh, but what does his fingernails look like, though? It's just like, as I'm like, you <laughs> know. the fingernails though. <laughs> How's that fingernail gang know? <laughs> okay, okay. And then, like, when it comes to, like, certain fashion choices, there's a story that ooh. I still don't feel oh my safe God. Sharing. Oh, my God. Please tell me. Your smile oh right God. now. You guys can't see it. <laughs> What happened? Do you think he'll listen to this? Because I really like him. He's a great friend. He's a great guy. If you include this caveat, which we will. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he'll be okay. Okay. So had, I had a friend. Oh I have God. a friend. I still have a Present friend. Tense. Yeah, we're still friends. I still like him very much. Right? Okay. And it was never anything like romantic or like physical or anything because he's yeah. married. Right. Okay. <laughs> Wrench in there. Uh, another deal breaker. Oh, yeah. Don't yeah. be married. Okay. Maybe. No, don't be Maybe. married. Maybe. Not a deal breaker. <laughs> no, seriously. Don't be married. Okay. But uh, yeah, you know, we just like hung out, you know, whatever. He's a very, very attractive man. Mm-hmm. So I like my white boys covered in tattoos. <laughs> And he was definitely covered in tattoos. I feel like that's such a type. Um, so covered in tattoos. Yes. And he would also wear like really nice suits, which is like a, a really sexy like juxtaposition. Yeah. Like, oh man, I'm classy and debonair, <laughs> but also I have a wild side to me because I have love and hate <laughs> tattooed on my knuckles. Oh like, my what are you God. getting? What is what is this? <laughs> this mystery is just so much. Okay. And I saw him one particular day and he he was wearing a pair of brand new, like freshly starched. <laughs> cargo pants oh my god 
like 2015. Okay, so walk me through this. Okay, so like <laughs> what it was like mad pockets, brown, all the pockets. green. They were green. They were <laughs> olive green cargo pants. Uh-huh. Had several pockets. An overabundance of pockets. As and cargo be- pants as, are want to have. As they are want to have. <laughs> but I mean, like from the waist up, it was fine. Like he was wearing a a, a button up, just like a nice, clean, crisp white button up. And then the pants. And so, so a I'm button like, up and cargo pants. Yes. What a combo. Oh my God. Reminded so, this happened in 2015. <laughs> okay. And so I look at him, I'm like, oh man, you got, got on some new threads. Huh? He's like, yeah, you know, figured I would go out, you know, switch up the wardrobe a little bit. Oh, and no. then. Oh no. There's more? There's more. <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, yeah, I call this look tactile chic. What? What is that? What is that? Why are you inventing tactile chic? For like cargo pants. I'm imagining you like invented I need to like do parkour, but I'm about to go to a fashion show next. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is he imagining? What is that look for him? <laughs> I don't know. And I just like him so much. I was like, oh man, yeah. So that I was a phrase you. he used. He brought that up he, himself. Yes. I feel like he invented that phrase. Okay. okay. To describe he created a whole thing around his cargo pants. And I was just like, oh. Yo, Tracy, I feel like I know you so much better now. Right? <laughs> I think those are like... I feel like I need to set you up on a date now. Oh, no. Tracy's <laughs> <laughs> like, I did not sign up for this. <laughs> this was not in the contract. Hold <laughs> That was Heaven Nagato and Tracy Clayton. Check out their BuzzFeed podcast, Another Round. In my circle of friends, we actually call this being gold pantsed. And the reason is because um, once a pal of ours in high school went on a date with a very beautiful man she'd met in the park. They had an amazing time, rode bikes, ate snacks. Imagine the most idyllic New York date possible. She was very excited to see him again until he arrived at her door wearing a pair of gold lame pants. And that is the moment where everything changes, my friend. When the gold pants make it clear that you are never, ever going to be touching this person ever again. You call it deal breaker. I call it gold pantsing. They all mean the same thing. My name is Miranda July, and I'm a writer, filmmaker, and artist. This is the story of how I fell in lust at a meditation retreat. Anyone who's been at a meditation retreat has has probably also fallen in lust. I think that's like mostly what people do there is like sit there and think about sex uh, and, and like replay Andy McDowell movies. This is one of those 10-day silent meditation retreats. You had to drive north of Portland and then just kind of go down a country road to a really ugly, depressing series of kind of low shacks. Something sad happened there and then meditation retreats. And, you know, you can't talk to anyone for that time. You need to wear, like clothes that are equally silent so like everyone is just wearing like their drabest sweat like black sweatpants or gray clothes and you can't even really look people in the eye like you're just not supposed to engage and I was seated behind 
this older butch woman just this kind of sinewy like tough I mean I was in gray sweatpants she was in like an all black top and sweats and I just really got worked up about her I think it you know it started because she was really what I was looking at when my eyes were open which wasn't a lot but when they were open I was staring at her neck her her gorgeous neck and then it just grew from there I feel like I spent all of my education sitting behind different boys looking at their necks and that was always a really sexy part of school for me all boys were jerks but they were all good when you looked at their necks (laughs) they were just kind of like innocent and you know just sweet it was like the part of them their mom loved a nape you know just a a naked little nape with gray hair and and that familiar kind of slightly shaved boyish cut. And then at night, you know, you're just lying there alone, just like, I mean, I just feel like the whole retreat is masturbating like again and again, because it's hard to sleep. You're just so contained and in your head and so far away from your whole life. And all you have is like this world of fantasy. And I did have a boyfriend at the time. Um, my lesbian years were long behind me, I had thought, but now there was this new future life that would begin. And this was the countdown to it. And it was sort of like 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. And then on the last day, I mean, I was beside myself. I was like, what will be our first words to each other? Like, we're going to remember them forever. And what will her voice sound like? How quickly can we touch? Will it be like in one of our cars? Or And the day came and we all changed into our real clothes. I, you know, tried to make myself look as good as I could. And I walked out to this common area and and just like my eyes were just darting around and my heart is beating and people are starting to get like picked up by their friends or partners and and I see her and she's wearing a pink sweatshirt with like an applique on it of of like a like a basket of some sort like a cornucopia or something and and like a little white collar that's probably like attached to the sweatshirt and and then just some like light colored mom jeans and white tennies and her short hair was still short it was just um it was like midwestern woman you know (laughs) uh and there was her husband and she just hopped into their minivan and just drove away and it's just a completely different person. <laughs> like my butch lover <laughs> just disappeared. <laughs> um, although she lives on inside me forever. According to my colleague, Liz Watson, who I hear does a lot of youthful dating, there are three kinds of men on OkCupid. Here Liz comes now, ready to explain. 
The term basic is something which is almost exclusively used to describe women, but I found in my explorations of the jungles of OkCupid, there are many different kinds of men who can only be described as basic. Number one, Patrick Dateman, aka Choky Yacht Boy. This guy is somehow simultaneously the most boring and the most terrifying person you've ever met. The animal conviction that he has committed at least 10 sex crimes will only increase as he twists his perfect teeth in an approximation of a grin and insists on buying you another $18 cocktail at this totally hipster speakeasy that's been featured in Time Out at least five times. You can play Mad Libs with this guy's school and job and swap out Dartmouth slash Penn slash Tufts and J.P. Morgan slash Goldman Sachs slash independent startup as needed. Signature pick. Him with five fraternity brothers posing on some kind of large watercraft or a rooftop bar. He'll say, I'm the one in the blue button-up. They will all be in blue button-ups. Number two, Vinjamin Diesel, a.k.a. swole and ready to roll. Tank tops and bulging biceps ahoy, and at least one tattoo embodying his life philosophy. Something like, no regrets, or to the nights I can't remember with the people I'll never forget. This guy loves fast cars, the gym, his boys, his mama, and his pit bull. He'll lead strong, telling you how much he would love to get a chance to respect you. I actually like the Benjamin Diesel. There's a running undercurrent of earnestness, which is surprisingly endearing. He'll promise candlelit dinners and red roses without a hint of irony, which can be refreshing. Be warned, though. That same quality also means multiple messages about how he would love to eat your pussy for hours. He is not shy. Signature pick. Sunglasses, a smirk, and leaning on a vintage car which is somehow inside his weight room? Number three, Joss Weedle, a.k.a. the soft belly nerd fuck. This guy prides himself on not being like those jocks and bros that he hated in high school. He's different. He's a free thinker. Just ask, you know, his Calvin and Hobbes tattoo, his Firefly DVDs, his expensive board game collection, his vintage gaming consoles, his ukulele slash unicycle, The irony of priding oneself as an individual whose identity is defined by consumable media and collectible products is completely lost on this guy. He'll insist that he has a bunch of female friends, but he's also really into putting down selfie-obsessed Instagram whores. To provoke an instant meltdown, tell him you love either Kim Kardashian or Yoko Ono. They're all obsessed with drinking whiskey and will text you into an early grave. Signature pick. Cargo shorts and a shirt from T-Fury, either juggling or climbing a rock. Possibly him in a vest and a red satin shirt with matching bow tie. The caption will have the words classy or epic in it. This has been your field guide to the basic bros of OkCupid. That was Liz Watson. Um, For anyone who can't see her because this is the radio, she looks like a sexy girl detective. Mari Neff is a gorgeous artist, model, and actor. Hi. (laughs) Here she is talking about some of her more recent dating experiences. Uh, I I just turned 23 years old. I'm in the middle of my second year as, like, living totally as... I mean, I don't know if one can ever say they're totally living as a woman, but, like, that's what I am on the record. And that's kind of where I'm at right now, and... I'm 
two years old, basically. I am hormonally a teenage girl because of how long I've been on hormones. And I have just spent the past year just, or like the past two years, really, um, just negotiating with what it is to occupy a female space and being re-socialized as female, as, as a woman. I tweeted the other day that I assume most of my boy problems are because I'm trans, but I think a lot of them are because I'm smart. So, like, I'll I'll talk to men, and, like, they're not listening to what I'm saying, and that's so new for me. Or, you know, there are different expectations of me on dates. You know, when I'm, when, when, when I'm forward, when I'm vocal, you know, I can sense... A shift in the sales and it becomes more of like oh I can be really I can be friends with this intelligent woman versus like oh I could like have sex with this woman you know what I mean when I think of what romance means to me I have to return to this idea of my womanhood being only two years old and my emotional maturity in the female space being like nowhere near as developed as it's going to be I'm like learning how to be a woman and like how to be a woman in relationships and right now my idea of romance is deliciously cliche I don't know how not to get butterflies when you know, some guy brings me out to, like, a fancy restaurant and pulls the chair out for me, like... And then, you know, we go on a walk after and we kiss, like... You know, they say all great artists have to, like, master the cliches before they can innovate, and I feel like I'm just mastering the cliches of romance and I don't have the resources to innovate yet. I'm going to say the word trans, like, probably within 30 or 45 minutes of, like, meeting a new person. So I'm figuring out the time and place to talk about it. I actually tried something last night. I was on sort of, like, a faux date. (laughs) It was kind of a, like, oh, he was out with his friends, and he had, like, slid in my Instagram DMs a couple days ago, and then he, like, came to my house at... 2 a.m. and we like walked around and then he slept over so like that's what the date was but um we were walking and talking because we had never met IRL before IRL being in real life and I knew he knew I was transgender I knew he was straight and had dated only cis women before me and I kept wanting to say trans when I was talking to him or talk about my transition or like bring it up but I kind of challenged myself not to really go there because I feel like it's very personal and potentially a lot for someone to deal with I mean the thing about me it's like because I have this public persona and people can google me and it's like oh she's trans like I kind of don't have to talk about it as much. And I did bring it up, but I was, like, on top of him at that point. Like, before I start sex with someone, and I assume or know that they haven't been with a trans woman before, I, like, press the pause button, and I'm like, hey, I don't know whether or not you've been with, like, a trans person before. It's not that big of a deal, but, like, I just want to open it up. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, like, feel free to voice them. Because people, like 
they want to be sexy and go along with it, but like sometimes they just freak out. It's it's a fascinating negotiation, but not talking about it worked pretty well last night. So <laughs> nobody sets updates for trans girls. Oh, like hey, you should meet my friend Hari because like you totally fuck trans girls. Like <laughs> that, you know. I don't get hooked up. It's always like I and I kind you know and. I get really like scared of rejection a lot, <laughs> and it's it's often quite difficult for me to like approach people. So I kind of wait to get approached. It's like a part of this sorry second waivers. But like if I want to get fucked, like I kind of have to like shut up and have and like let it come to me. You know, like I heard about my girlfriend. It's like oh, like you know, once she started kind of doing the submissive thing like all the boys were like chasing her and like she was very forward before but then she kind of changed and I don't know whether it was calculated I don't know whether it was something that just happened during her transition but like when you hear one story about a trans girl like and like you know something worked for her like you kind of just do it because there's no infer- there's no primer there's no like there's so little literature about like being trans and like negotiating with stuff so Trans bodies in general, perhaps, but especially trans bodies um, in medical transition and the vast majority of those not having had um, gender confirmation surgery, those are non-binary bodies. I'm not talking about the identities, I'm talking about the bodies. I'm talking about people who have breasts and penises. Like, you don't learn how to fetishize those bodies out in the open. Trans porn is the number one fastest growing porn industry and the trans body has been being consumed privately in America at least for years and years and years by many 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 people but obviously there's this thing and this is like something really serious at the core of violence against trans women where men don't understand that their attraction to trans women is a valid attraction. I'm in such a weird place right now, I guess, because the only sex I ever knew is sex with gay men. And I still have sex with gay men sometimes, but I feel weird because they seem to get it, at least on kind of this, like, queer enlightened level, but, like, I can't help but feel like they're seeing me as, like, a man. But at the other side, it's like I want to be cool and queer and not be like, I only fuck straight dudes. But when I fuck straight dudes, I get so dysphoric about the lower part of my body. And <laughs> it's really difficult. I keep myself very safe and I keep myself very cautious. And unfortunately, when it's going well with someone, I'm constantly preparing for the moment. My expectations are let down because it's just happened so many times. I mean, for better or for worse, I feel like the acknowledgement of trans women as lovable, fuckable, not just respectable, not just valid, not just I tolerate you, Caitlyn Jenner. I feel like the next big piece of this trans tipping point puzzle is for like a famous guy to step forward with a trans girl on his arm and be like, this is my girlfriend or wife or whatever. I love her. I think she's sexy. I think she's beautiful. 
I have amazing sex with, you know, all, all of that. Because the reason that a lot of trans women, especially trans women of color, especially black trans women, are getting murdered, like, like it's not women killing us. It's not trans people killing trans people. It's cis hetero men killing us a lot of the time after they think we're beautiful and they catcall us and then they realize that we're not cisgender and then they feel like they've been tricked. Trans dating, it's hardcore and it's like really scary. And that's coming from me who like couldn't be dating in a more like rarefied, open-minded Manhattan pool of like artsy boys and like, you know, creative folk. I'm not saying it all sucks, I'm saying that like, it's not easy. And like, you can't just like go out and find sex with people like, boom, boom, and forget about it. It always has to be a production. <laughs> that was the inimitable Hari Neff. Emma Stone and June Squibb are with us here at Women of the Hour to talk love, sex, and everything in between. You submitted your questions, and boy, did they answer. What's the worst way you can ask for someone's number? (laughs) There are so many terrible ways. The worst way? Uh, Well, I think to be too brazen about it. So, I mean, I I don't know that there's there's a specific terrible way. It's just, you know... Uh, oh, oh! I'm doing great. I think you've got every right in the world to uh, ask them, you know, for their number. What What do you think is the worst way to ask for someone's number? I guess the worst way to ask for someone's numbers would be with like a sleazy pickup line or by like negging them by being like, not that I'm even going to call you, but if I could get your number. Oh, yeah. No, that is terrible. Yeah. That, that would be awful. Yeah, Lena wins this one. No, there's no winning. There's no winning in advice. You've won the advice. How do you balance if one partner's sex drive is higher than the other? I I think that you have to use judgment and consideration in something like that. I think it can be talked about. I think sometimes the male or the other partner, whoever it might be, you know, I always found it was hard sometimes to get them to talk. And I think that's the answer to everything. Oof. Communication and respect is the best possible advice for that. That was Emma Stone and June Squibb, and they'll be making appearances in every episode of Women of the Hour. Ladies, let's get real. Your clothes, haircut, and Instagram pics reflect a unique style. But what about your pussy? That's right. Whether you call it a snatch, a bearded beaver, or simply nature's coin purse, now your pussy can leave a signature too. Signature pussy. When they ask, what's that smell? Make sure my pussy is the answer. Just pop three drops in your undies every day and your pussy will light up the world. Signature pussy. Choose the scent that suits your mood. Hot day, sharp and spicy, Musty basement, almost nothing, pee, cumin, pencil shavings, metallic penny, third day of your period, Tuscan leather. 
Open your legs. Let the world smell you. Signature pussy. Find it wherever you get all the other stuff for your pussy. I've known my friend Joanna Avales since we were three years old. Um, she's an incredible artist who created the illustrations for my book, Not That Kind of Girl. But long before that, we were actual girls together at summer camp where we wrote poetry, did ceramics, and developed epic teenage crushes on a pair of best friends who were also rappers, Jewish rappers. Hi, Joe. Hi. (laughs) I think what we're here to talk about is the summer of 2002. This was the summer we went to uh, the July at Bennington summer program. Indeed. We'd been friends since we were three. And we went there to study poetry. And maybe ceramics. Definitely ceramics. We got there, and it was pretty clear immediately we were only going to hang out with each other. Yeah. But that we were also going to fall in love with a pair of white rappers (laughs) whose names both started with the letter J. Yeah. And I believe called themselves Juicebox and Garbage Can. And they were best friends, and we were best friends. Yeah, and they were best friends, we were best friends. I mean, like, just to set the scene, yeah, we were 16. Let's backtrack. You were 15. Yes, we're looking at a photo of me and Lena, and we look like we're dripping in Virgin Suicide's light. Um, we're sitting by a lake, clutching each other. Oh, my God. Joanna's wearing this, like, little striped bikini. She fully looks like an Olsen twin when they were still, like, going to Paris in movies. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the vibe? Yeah. yeah. So much attitude. Do you remember how we got a crush on these guys and how it played out. I don't remember when we first saw them, but I think we spent most of our time in a state of complete fantasy and sheer love and obsession by them. I was so in love with my half of this best friend duo. And you were so in love with your half. Obsessed. That was kind of the crux of the summer. That was the crux of the summer was us chasing them And them expressing that they really cared about us, but that for whatever reason, we weren't the people they had a crush on. So much lust. It was a lot of lust. Do you remember the night that one of our two crushes, actually maybe both of them, had gotten a special voice disguiser and he called, we had phones in our dorm room and he called me and said, I'm going to kill you through a thing that disguised his voice and I'm right outside your window. And my reaction was to hang up the phone and just have the most immediate, most horrible diarrhea that any person's ever. Like, it was like it went straight from my ears to my butt. (laughs) So what was really also magical was, like, you were painting. I remember you were painting your face off. We were making ceramics. We were writing poetry. We were in, like, this, like, incredibly pure phase of artistic expression. Yeah. Much of which was fueled by our love for this pair of rappers. Yeah. In the in this photo album, there's a photo of you doing open mic. Do you remember what you were singing? Yes, I wrote a song, um, and I believe the chorus went, I'm so good at being a victim, but you have made me a victim. And you are not right for me, but you are all that is right for me. Was and, it about your summer crush? Yeah, and I sang it right at him, and later I was like, <laughs> you know that song was about you? And he was like, yeah, you were staring at me the whole time. So then... Do you remember what happened was we left camp? And then they came from their respective New England states to New York to visit us. And we, we did picked something, them up at the Chinatown bus. And we did something horrible, like go to St. Mark's and eat pizza. And then we went to it. We tried to go to a jazz club and we couldn't get in. Oh, God, I definitely blocked that part out. And so then we went back to your house and 
when I gave my crush a blowjob and Lena was in the room asleep. <laughs> she just put asleep in quotes because I was not asleep. I was busy in bed with my crush and all I did was kiss him quickly on the lips then ask if I could see his penis. His flaccid <laughs> penis. Which I did. <laughs> the blowjob happened. Yeah. And the worst part, the worst part is afterwards I heard him go, thank you, Joanna. Ew! <laughs> Ew, I just had terrible shivers 15 years later. He said, thank you, Joanna. And you were like, (laughs) You were like, then the next day I was like, was it fun? And you were like, no. (laughs) I also, like, I feel like I can say this to you now, which is I feel like the true love story of that summer was obviously us. It was definitely us. (laughs) We were in love. I know, and I used to walk around holding your hand and then picking your hand up in mine and being like, it looks so beautiful in my hand. (laughs) Which is what you say. I remember saying to you like, wow, I love to look at your stomach. (laughs) I think it's cool that we both have pictures of ourselves kissing each other's crushes on the cheek because we weren't jealous. No, we were all we were all in love. I love you, Joanna. I love you, Lena. Let's talk about sex, baby. Or let's talk about sex, babies, shattering records as a female director, and, as Sam Taylor Johnson, director of Fifty Shades of Grey, would say, jumping into the world feet first. Sam and I started out our conversation by talking about Nowhere Boy, a film about John Lennon. It was her first feature, a story she was obsessed with, and yet she almost didn't make the film. There's a quote from you that you said in September 2010 about directing Nowhere Boy, which I'm going to feed back to you, which is, I thought I'm in too deep, and if I mess this up, I'm never going to make a film again, and I went into a panic. I got into the car and said, I just have to call these producers and pull out. I got into the car, and I put the key in the ignition, and Lennon's voice came straight out of the radio, and it was starting over. It was one of those moments where I thought it was a sign, okay, I'm going to do it. I found this beautiful because you ended up making the movie, meeting your husband, receiving lots of recognition, was this fate, and does that concept even mean anything to you? It was It was one of those strange moments where I really was going to pull out because I thought there was strong opinions, you know, from Beatles fans. There were strong opinions from his sister. There were strong opinions from everyone around um, around him. And, yeah, I got in my car and then Starting Over came out, and I thought, yeah. Okay, I can either ignore this. <laughs> and I thought, this is starting over. This is a brand new part of my life, and I'm ready. And, and yes, yeah, sometimes I do think those things collide. And uh, it was, there were little things like that all the time throughout the whole movie. So do I believe in it? I choose to. I like it. I like, I like having serendipitous moments. There we go. <laughs> so I knew immediately when we decided we were going to do an episode on love that I wanted to talk to you for a million reasons because of the way that you express love through your work. I wanted to say, without being a without being a trashy gossip rag, you met your husband on the set of Nowhere Boy. Mm-hmm. You fell in love as you were directing him. I tend as a director to have this incredible fear of it's so easy for the boundaries to blend that mm-hmm. I almost like stay like I'm afraid to barely touch somebody's shoulder in mm-hmm. a scene. And I wondered if there was anything you could tell me about that process of being a director, of falling in love with someone, of how those two things fit. The falling in love was negated through the process. It was like, I'm not. No, I'm not. It's just, you know, we we get on really well. It's a powerful connection. We're working really well together. And uh, and it grew stronger and stronger. And throughout the process, it was just, it's not there. It's not there. Let's just keep going. Let's keep going until 
until the movie finished. Let's get through, let's be super professional about this. And then it was hard to ignore. Then it was just something, yes, so super powerful and such a strong soul connection that it was something that I just had to face up to. Yep, here it is. I have found directing to be it's boundaryless, and so you want to create boundaries, and it's loving, and so you want to distance yourself. And I wondered if you could talk about sort of the emotional connection that you form with actors, actors, even actors who you don't end up marrying, yeah, <laughs> and what that is to you and how you sort of like manage to keep it loving but also maintain your power. This is really just I need help. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, a good example is with Fifty Shades of Grey. We – Dakota, Jamie and I had to become a very tight unit. We worked really hard together to try and create a sort of environment of safety, an environment that was boundaried, but protective, loving, nurturing and safe. Because yeah. in order to do something as explicit as that and to to go into, um, you know, arenas of um, sex scenes, nude scenes, um, scenes where... Dakota's particularly very vulnerable. We really worked hard on forming that relationship as a tight friendship. So I think the boundaries, they're there in the professional sense, but at the same time, you know, powerful friendships are built. So yeah. they become boundaryless later. You and I can definitely get down on the topic of directing sex scenes. I feel mm -hmm. like we've both really um, earned our stripes in the sex scene directing department. I even wonder if you've gone further than me. <laughs> I feel really lucky to be sharing this space with you. <laughs> Going into a scene where you're conveying sexuality in that way, what's like most essential to you? Absolutely, that what you're seeing is believable, but also being able to protect the two actors as people within that environment. Yeah. And also to try and help create the chemistry that you need to feel on screen. Yeah, it's a complicated, finely tuned relationship that you have to create. I think, again, especially for Dakota, who I felt was um, obviously more vulnerable in certain scenes, yeah. you know, I wanted to almost be whispering in her ear and talking her through the process of it so that she felt safe. This was the kind of movie that could only be directed, should only be directed by a woman who had had the kind of journey you had and you made an independent film, then you made a studio movie that broke every record of female directors ever, ever broken. I know before Nora Ephron died, we talked a lot about the fact she was like, if I get asked to be on one more panel about women in film, if I get mm. asked to make one more comment about how I'm being held back or what's mm. wrong with my career, I'm going to lose my mind. But I also feel like it's my duty I know the, to like yeah. have this dialogue. Has that been a feeling that you've had? Yeah, it's a, it is. It's a tough one because you want to just say, no, I'm just doing what I'm doing and everyone yeah. else does. I mean, the biggest one that bothers me most is when I get asked, how do you manage being a parent and, um, and making a film? Because obviously you have to leave your family behind. And I was like, no, I don't have to leave my family behind. And I balance it. And, you know, did you ask... Um, any of Ridley Scott or any of those people. It's this implication that as a mother, you're abandoning the nest. And yeah. uh, and that I was asked a lot, you know, how do you manage parenthood and being a director? Do you feel like in the art world, you were ever asked to sort of like speak up for yourself in that way? Or do you feel like there was a, no. a clearer sense that there was space for you? There was, there was a clearer sense there was space. I think in the art world, people would have been shot down much faster for asking yeah. that. It would have been seen too crass to mention it. And I want you to know something you did early on, earlier on, that I love is your Crying Men series. Mm. It was um, it was 28 men 
crying, but all actors and all recognizable actors. It was a Hollywood portfolio where they these men at this kind of top of their game and, and powerful, charismatic were actually depleted and vulnerable and covered in snot and tears. <laughs> that's like a that's like some kind of weird, like feminist radical fantasies, just like making twenty eight men in power cry. I know, I know. And I think, you know, sometimes I think my work is three steps ahead of me. I've said this before, but it feels like you know, I'm not sure why I want to do this, but I'm going to do this and it'll take me on a journey of discovery of why. I. And then I realized, you know, I'd just come out of major illness and going through chemotherapy and probably a depression that I didn't recognize. And I wonder why I want to make all these people cry for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then also removing it so far, you know, for me to not even recognize myself in that I mean by the end it took me three years to do that whole series and by the end I was like okay I'm done done making people cry I'm better I'm better I feel better you guys can I'm stop better. you've talked so beautifully and publicly in a way that I know is really helpful to people to women mm. about surviving cancer two times and I was really inspired by the way you talked about choosing to take control of your health and body about not mm. putting all of your faith in your necessarily in your doctor, not putting all your faith in mm. like sort of the the common wisdom of Western medicine. And I wondered what you felt gave you the confidence to do that because so many women feel so powerless yeah. when it comes to their health. It's I mean, first first and foremost, the whole process is frightening. There's no there's no other way of explaining it. It's terrifying. And, you know, you do put yourself immediately in the hands of people that you trust and believe know better than you. And so first first time round, I had colon cancer when I was 29 after I'd just had my uh, first daughter. And yeah, it was terrifying, but I just sort of went through it and dealt with it. And then after that, I just thought I need to do a sort of radical life shift um, in order to sort of manage it in a way. And you find things that you feel just make you feel better and you feel that make you feel stronger and can get you through the dark darkness. But I think, you know, it's also about being open to change and challenges in a in a more powerful way. You know, I think, you know, going through that made me more open to falling in love and, and creating a new family and and um, or creating the family that I have now with Aaron. And this is working for me. I'm not going to be afraid. And there was plenty to be afraid of. And, you know, I just go into things much more willingly without trepidation i try not to let fear govern my life is basically what i'm trying to say in a long-winded way <laughs> which is beautiful and you're a mother of four daughters which is an insane and fascinating thing to be mm. i like just thinking about the fact that you're going to have four people who feel more strongly about you and who you've had more of an impact on their life like there's something about mothers and daughters where it's like mm. whether you love or hate your mother it's the most powerful complicated connection I know, and I feel that responsibility every day. I can't even imagine. <laughs> All day, every day. I always imagine women with sons, and again, I don't have any kids, but I imagine with sons, you're like, yeah, I'll probably turn out okay. And with daughters, like, it's just this constant it vigil is. It is. over that. You're so vigil. And then also you, you're sort of saying things that your mother said that you're sort of saying, is that right? If there's something you could tell them, and this is like a little bit of a Hallmark card question, but also one that I just desperately wanted to an answer to. I don't to. know if I have an answer. Go on. If there's something you could tell them about love, like something that you wanted them to hold on to about loving and being loved, is there something that you would say to them? Uh, accept it if you want it. I think when I first met Aaron, you know, he was very 
very powerful with professing his love straight up with no fear, with no boundaries, with no nothing. And I was just bowled over by it. And I think the, you know, the thing that made everything work was me just saying, okay, okay. Um, you know, and I feel the same and let's not be afraid and go forth. And I think that's the biggest thing that I can pass on to my kids is just not to be afraid. That was my friend, Sam Taylor Johnson. Welcome back to Lena's Corner. This is actually one I've been very excited about. This is the story of Mary McLean. Had I been born a man, Mary wrote in her 1902 debut, The Story of Mary McLean, I would by now have made a deep impression on the world. The book chronicled the frustrations and aspirations of a 19-year-old living in Butte, Montana. When her stepfather spent the money set aside for her college education, Mary remained stuck at home with her siblings in a pile of notebooks that she filled with her furious scribblings. Her writing soon became the first confessional diary ever published by a U.S. author, and the book turned into a national sensation, selling 100,000 copies in one month alone. That's basically Twilight level if you want a modern comparison. Mary was wry, she was sharp, and she was obsessed with the devil. She actually hoped to call the book, I Await the Devil's Coming. Unsurprisingly, her editor vetoed that title. At 22, Mary blazed into Chicago for the book's publication, having already mastered the pull quote. Could have written a book and made myself out a sweet, nice girl, she told one reporter, but I chose to tell the truth. Mary used the money she earned from the book to travel to Chicago, then New York. She wrote and starred in an autobiographical silent film called Men Who Have Made Love to Me and published two more books. She was a bisexual. She struggled with poverty, with alcohol, and with a society that wasn't quite ready for her. Mary died under mysterious circumstances in a Chicago hotel room in 1929 at age 48. Despite her success as a writer and critical acclaim, Mary's work was consistently condemned in ways that may sound familiar to contemporary female memoirists. She was called self-absorbed, sex-crazed, quotidian. Sound familiar? Not even talking about myself. I want to thank comedian Patton Oswalt for initially sending me this book. The following letter was written to an ex-boyfriend who I couldn't stop dreaming about, and it was never sent. On the advice of a friend, I burned it instead, though obviously kept a copy on my hard drive. This was a formative relationship for me, the first real adult man whose bed I ever shared, and the first one who showed me what longing and feverish heartbreak and bitter disappointment and vaginal bruising felt like. The moment I wrote this letter, the dream stopped, and so did the Googling, actually, though I still think of him every time I wear a wool hat in the rain or eat bone marrow. Dear Blank, I'm writing now because I dream of you much too often. At first it was occasional, you appearing at a party in an overcrowded loft space or winding up in my workplace with a petty grievance. Now it's near constant. When I dream, it is mostly of you. Sometimes you come to me, lurking outside my door, begging me to take a walk. Sometimes I wander into your job and ask after you. A teenager, distracted by her iPhone, says she isn't sure where you are. And me, nearly begging, please? You come upstairs and you see me and your smile turns straight. 
You quickly move from anger to need to distance. I cycle through my poses, from all-powerful to sympathetic to aching. We find many different ways to say we are sorry, but not sorry enough. I awake next to the man I love, guilty as sin and soaked in sweat, so I'm asking for it to stop. I will never forget the first time I saw you. I was 22 years old, all greasy hair and a bouquet of pimples on my forehead, wearing the inexpensive work slacks my mother had bought me on Lower Broadway so I wouldn't have to wear leggings and a big sweater to my first real job. You introduced yourself, and I thought you were the most beautiful-looking person I had ever seen, your skin so sickly pale. You stood up tall like a boy in the army. You told me you were about to be 30, and that seemed epic. I couldn't imagine what you had seen, what you had done. You started to confide in me about your crazy girlfriend and your hatred of the guy you work next to and the fact that maybe, someday, you might like to write fiction. I confided too, but they were false confessions designed to make me appear as cutting-edge crazy as the women you were prone to loving. In truth, I was a much less glamorous kind of crazy. Coddled, medicated, and lonely. No coke off other women's tits. No anal sex behind a pool table. Just fetal position on a Friday night. Teen movies in bed while sedatives kicked in. Oral surgery. I don't know anymore what you're allowed to consider true love. Now, for me, true love is honesty, and it is steadfastness, and it is a bathroom stocked with everything two people need to stay healthy. It is cleaning up the dog piss that is dried sticky by the fridge, and it is making sure the AC is where we both want it. It is breaking down in someone's arms and going to brunch with their grandmother even when you'd rather die. Back then, it was waiting with the phone in my hands for your name to appear. It was begging you silently to see me, it was hiding in the bodega by your house and calling you and pretending I was at a party nearby. It was running into your brother late at night after you'd let me in off the street and knowing that he knew what I was there for. I was waiting for your brother's pretty Korean girlfriend to be done in the bathroom so I could pee. I spent too long pretending I didn't love you. But if I didn't love you, then you wouldn't be barging into all these dreams, now would you? So let me just tell you the reasons I loved you. Because you were smart and didn't ever do anything about it because you let me say the worst things I could think of, because you treated my vagina like it was fucking fascinating, because you changed hairstyles too often, because sometimes you would hint at a sadness you couldn't discuss, because we watched French films and analyzed them after sex even though we both knew it was pretentious and useless, because you're probably still funny as shit, because you refused to be mine but made me yours. Which is why when I did see you on the corner last summer, I blinked like you were a mirage. How could something so often conjured actually appear? Imagining plane crashes keeps planes in the air. Imagining ex-lovers on your block keeps them far away from you. But no, there you sat, on a stoop, with a beautiful girl, drinking a brown bag beer and laughing, hair longer than mine. I clutched my boyfriend's hand and asked him to find a new route to where we were going, and he didn't ask any questions, just checked Google Maps and guided me away. It's been over two years since we actually spoke, since you told me you missed me and that it hurt not to be close to me, and since I told you casually that I was in love with a nice Jewish boy and that I had a crazy dog, since you congratulated me like that was what you wanted for me, even though I don't believe you ever thought of my future as real. It's been nearly seven years since we met, and I thought, oh, this is what they were all talking about when they said it would just hate you. I think a lot about reaching out to you, telling you that I know you'll be 40 in a few years, that in six months I will be 30, and from there on out we will keep aging and keep not knowing each other. I want you to know that I didn't disappear because I wanted to, but because I had to. I truly believe, whether it's fair to me or not, that I let you think it was okay to hurt me. I gave that to you like a neatly wrapped gift, and then I couldn't give it anymore. But I am here, in your burrow, 
thinking of you more often than you'd imagine based on my schedule and based on the fact that I'm in love with a man and with the life that we've started building. Isn't it wild that all of that can exist at once? I am still the former me who you let up in the elevator with my heart pounding, but I'm also the current me who would never, ever let you up in my elevator. Sometimes at night I walk the dog with my headphones on, not far from the parking lot where we fucked for the first time and then you put me in a cab like I was an eight-year-old saying, text me and let me know you got home. And in the heat of this familiar terrain, I imagine what I would do if you appeared across the street. What would I do? I would panic, and then I would smile, and you would smile back because it hasn't been so long, really. I'm sorry for my part in all of this. Lena. This podcast was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman with help from Liz Watson and the all-lady BuzzFeed pod squad, Eleanor Kagan, Erica Kramer, Meg Kramer, and Julia Furlan. We had writing help from Alex Ronan. You may not believe this, but it took a village to create Signature Pussy. It was a collaboration between Kira Garcia, Eleanor Kagan, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Miranda July, and me. Our music is by Andrew Dost, and our theme song was written just for this show by the amazing band That Dog. Andrew Dost also helped with that. The song is called I Say What I Mean, and it's now available on iTunes. Emotional support provided by Audrey Gelman, who sweetly says that everyone who's hurt us will pay someday. And by Abraham Weiss Garcia, who has vomited 27 times and bit seven people since we started working on this podcast, but seems to be just fine. He is a cat. And if you like the show, please subscribe and rate it on iTunes. It really helps us broads get the word out. Thanks to everyone in today's episode. I mean what I say, and I say.